Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. From 1864 until 1871, a relatively secret organization of Canadian police patrolled Canada's borders. What began as a mission to prevent increasing tension between Britain and the United States evolved into a concerted effort to undermine a serious threat to Canadian sovereignty. This threat came from the Irish Republican organization known as the Fenians. Through a complex array of informants and spies on both sides of the border, this organization played a central role in defining Canada's response to the Fenian threat and became the country's first ever secret police organization. This is Season 8, Episode 2, The Frontier Constabulary, Canada's First Secret Police. Today's book recommendation is Canadian Spy Story. Irish Revolutionaries and the Secret Police. This book was written by David A. Wilson. It was published by McGill Queen's Press in 2022. The origins of Canada's secret police are rooted in an event that occurred in October of 1864 known as the St. Albans Raid. At that time, the United States was in its fourth year of a bloody civil war, and that October, a group of Confederate raiders crossed the border from Canada east into Vermont and raided the small town of St. Albans. Three banks were robbed, a gunfight broke out, and after failing to burn the town to the ground, the raiders then escaped and retreated back into Canada. While their immediate aims were to hit at a northern U.S. town and steal money, the larger aim was to increase Anglo-American tension. The Confederates themselves were always hopeful Britain would declare its support for the Confederacy. If the northern United States and Britain happened to go to war, then Britain would naturally come on the side of the Confederacy. 
Most of the raiders were actually captured by Canadian authorities, but a spirited defense by their attorneys and some poor judgment by the presiding judge led to their release. This release angered many in the United States. Numerous northern newspapers called for a military excursion into British North American territory to capture the raiders and bring them to justice back on U.S. soil. Several prominent United States generals also publicly called for a military operation. However, cooler heads prevailed in Lincoln's government in Washington, and no American military action was launched. Lincoln didn't want to do anything that might damage Anglo-American relations and push Britain onto the side of the Confederacy. Canadian authorities were very concerned about the possibility that a spike in Anglo-American tension might lead to actual war. The first move by the United States in case of war would be an invasion of the Canadas, just like during the War of 1812. Even if a military action was not the result of increasing tension, stronger border controls could affect Canadian trade with their southern neighbor. Thus, the security of the border had to be ensured. To alleviate said tension, Canadian authorities took several steps. Firstly, they rearrested a number of the St. Albans Raiders. Secondly, they sent the militia to the border. And finally, they ordered the formation of the Government Constabulary for Frontier Service, Canada's secret police, with a branch in Canada West and another one in Canada East. In Canada East, the constabulary was run by William Ermatinger, the son of a fur trader and Ojibwe woman, Ermatinger had served with the British Auxiliary Legion in Spain in the 1830s and became superintendent of police in Montreal when he returned. He then was put in charge of the Montreal Water Police. This was a police force first formed in 1851, responsible for patrolling the waterfront in Montreal and enforcing law and order in its harbors and canals. In fact, much of Ermatinger's recruits came from this branch. By the late 1850s, Ermatinger was made inspector of the volunteer militia, and by the 1860s was responsible for stopping the work of aggressive Union military recruiters operating in Canada East, as well as rounding up any Confederates who had escaped into Canada. It was clear that Ermatinger was a natural choice to lead the Canada East Constabulary. Unfortunately, there is a paucity of sources that have survived from this time. Thus, most of the knowledge of the constabulary comes from sources related to the branch in Canada West under the direction of Gilbert McMicken. McMicken was cut from a different cloth than his counterpart in Canada East. Originally from Scotland, McMicken worked in a variety of cross-border projects, a collector of customs helping to build the first telegraph line into the U.S. He was even part of the project to build the Queenston-Lewiston Suspension Bridge, all the while working his way up the political ladder, becoming a member of Canadian Parliament. At this time, the two Canadas shared the same Parliament. Through his rise in the political world, McMicken became close to future Canadian Prime Minister John A. Macdonald. 
With this important political connection, coupled with McMicken's work in the United States, he was appointed head of the constabulary in Canada West. The primary objective of the force was set out in Special Order No. 1. This was issued in late December 1864, and it read, and I quote, The chief duty of the force of which you are a member is to suppress and prevent attempts at raids being committed upon the country and the people of the United States. End quote. This is quite crucial to note. They were not protecting the border from U.S. incursions, but ensuring that no one living in the Canadas caused trouble in the U.S. A secondary objective was to limit the activities of aggressive recruiters who sought to entice British soldiers to desert and join the Union Army. It's important to note that these two objectives revolved around the ongoing civil war. No serious mention was made yet of the Fenians. Generally speaking, the officers under both McMicken and Ermatinger, numbering at different times between 30 to 50 officers, reported various rumors and grumblings of a wide variety of illegal cross-border schemes. One officer reported a nest of southern sympathizers in the Niagara region. Another reported a Confederate plan to attack Ogdensburg, but this was simply made up by a Canadian informant, as they found out later. At the end of the day, the border was so large and so wide open that it was exceedingly difficult for these men to make any serious headway in regards to their objectives. But it should be said that some money from the St. Albans raid was recovered in Windsor, Ontario, and a few substitute brokers, that is, aggressive union recruiters, were in fact arrested. Now, some of the officers of the constabulary focused on the Fenians, and these Fenians were the general boogeymen of British North America, and of course the subject of two CCH episodes back in Season 3, Episode 2, and Season 4, Episode 7. Check them out. But in general, when it came to the Fenians, the secret police didn't have much to go on. One of the agents, a Patrick Carey, reported that there were three Fenian lodges meeting in Guelph, but he was unable to infiltrate any of them. Generally speaking, it was clear that there were Fenian cells operating throughout the Canadas, but none of the secret police were able to provide more than basic information on them. Now, much of this failure to gain intelligence was a direct result of the quality, or lack thereof, of the police working the cases. Most of these police had little to no training on being undercover. Many of them blew their covers within days of arriving in a town. Long periods of boredom, plus long periods of time spent in taverns, meant many of them took to heavy drinking, and numerous complaints were filed by fellow officers about the drunkenness amongst the officers. As well, they often went weeks without pay, and this seriously demoralized the members of the force. This was further amplified by how dangerous the work often was. When their covers were blown, many of them faced threats and were even victims of physical abuse. Detective John Campbell arrested so many brokers, another name for aggressive union recruiters, that he was confronted by an angry group and threatened with violence. 
McMicken even wrote to John A. McDonald asking that his men be allowed to carry pistols. By the end of that first year, the force was so heavily demoralized that only two of McMicken's original 18 recruits remained. But by May of 1865, the decimation of McMicken's force seemed of no concern. This was because the war in the United States had come to an end. The days of the secret police seemed over. But that all changed only four months later. Because in the aftermath of the Civil War, thousands of Irish-American veterans returned home. And all of a sudden, rumors of Fenian activity erupted. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Folks, if you're looking for ad-free content from Curious Canadian History, look no further. Sign up to Patreon today. All you need to do is donate one or two bucks to the podcast via Patreon, and you can access all our episodes for free without any advertisement or sponsorship content. The fact is, we do this for free here at Curious Canadian History, and we love it. But we also need advertising revenue and your personal support to help us survive and continue to bring you the show. Patreon allows you to support the podcast safely, securely, and with the benefit of access to ad-free episodes. Furthermore, there's little surprise tidbits that I post weekly for those book lovers out there. So that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Sign up today. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So who are the Fenians? Well, the Fenians were an Irish Republican organization that operated in North America via a series of lodges, or in modern-day parlance, cells. The broad objective was to secure independence for Ireland. But by 1865, the leadership had its sights set on British North America. If they were able to draw British troops from Ireland to the British North American colonies, then an uprising back in Ireland may have a chance at success. Thus, with so many Irish-American veterans returning home from the front lines of the Civil War, the Fenians suddenly had a wave of potentially trained military recruits, and thus in turn, rumors began to fly regarding potential Fenian attacks on Canadian soil. As a result, McMicken was ordered to send men into the United States to assess the situation. But McMicken couldn't just send anyone. He needed Irish Catholics, or at least those who could pass as Irish Catholic. McMicken's men crossed the border, setting up in a number of key locations. For instance, Chicago was where the central leadership was located. And Cincinnati was also a key location. But men were also sent to possible invasion points like Godrich, Sarnia, Fort Erie, Clifton. 
Now, one might ask, what was the opinion of the American authorities regarding these cross-border secret police that were operating on U.S. soil? In some cases, U.S. officials simply didn't know about the clandestine operators. In other situations, they did, and generally they were quite helpful and would often provide information gleaned from their own work on the Fenians. Now, in general, the rumors coming back to Canada reported on rallies, newspapers, the organizational hierarchy, potential cells, but any of the serious details regarding actual mobilization or invasion plans were lacking. And this was because none of the detectives were able to successfully infiltrate the lodges on any serious level. Most of their intel came from the rank and file, while the core leadership members were closed off to anybody but a very tight circle. One of McMicken's men, who had fled Chicago fearing he had been discovered, reported that a Canadian attack was coming in November of that year. And this worried McMicken. It worried him so much that he traveled to Chicago personally to investigate these rumors. McMicken then spent time in Philadelphia, where a major Fenian convention was being held in October. Then he moved on to New York, but was unable to infiltrate the senior leadership. Things became so frustrating that at one point, McMicken recommended a plan whereby two prostitutes would be employed by the police to infiltrate the Fenian leadership. But no surprise, this came to no avail. In general, there was no real solid intel on the Fenians. McMicken continued to get mixed messages from his men, some reporting serious threats, others reporting that Ireland was the only target and British North America was safe. Yet his own work in the U.S. convinced McMicken that the Fenians had the support of many Irish Americans and thus posed a fairly serious threat if mobilized. Some British officials, including the commander of the British forces in North America, believed they constituted no real threat at all. Edward Archibald, the British consul in New York, could find no solid proof that any invasion was being planned. The Fenian leadership was very effective at keeping any serious plans hidden from prying Anglo-Canadian eyes. It's worth pointing out, though, that not all was well within the Fenian organization. In December, news got back to McMicken that the Fenian leadership had split between two rival factions, one that wanted to focus exclusively on Ireland and another that eagerly sought to attack Canada. While a split in the leadership was good news in the fight against the Fenians, broadly speaking, the fact that a diehard Attack Canada faction had now coalesced certainly heightened the concerns of many in British North America that an attack now was more likely than ever. The biggest problem facing McMicken was that no one could seem to get higher than a basic initiate in the organization. Some had, in fact, been initiated, but were never able to rise any higher up the ranks. Such an infiltration would take time, and often it felt like time was running out. In February 1866, McMicken made a concerted effort to overcome this obstacle. He sent his two best men, Patrick Nolan, an Irish Catholic, and Charles Clark, an Irish Protestant, 
to Pittsburgh, where the Fenians were holding their annual convention. Clark had already infiltrated the Fenians operating in Detroit and was on pretty good terms with the Detroit leadership. In Pittsburgh, Clark was able to smooth-talk his way into some prominent Fenian circles, and his report stated clearly that the Fenians had a full determination to attack Canada with hopes of arresting prominent Anglo-Canadian officials, including the Governor-General and anti-Fenian Canadian politician Darcy McGee. Clark even reported that the man chosen to lead the Fenian attack force had already submitted an invasion plan. He further stated that the Fenians would, without a doubt, be attacking before May. Interestingly, Patrick Nolan, who had no idea Clark was there, came away with nothing. He failed to infiltrate any serious circles and thus came away believing the Canadian invasion was nothing more than a fantasy. Other reports named a number of Fenian supporters within British North America further troubling the Anglo-Canadian leadership of the British colonies. Over the course of the next few months, more and more reports trickled into McMicken confirming Clark's discovery. In early March, the reports were coming in so fast that John A. MacDonald agreed to call out the militia, and it seemed like Buffalo was going to be the jumping-off point for any serious invasion, and reports came back from one of McMicken's men of an arms buildup in an auction house in that city. There was some hope that the Americans would help in stopping any sort of Fenian attack before it even occurred. The Americans were sharing information, but the American government was anxious about alienating Irish Catholic voters and vowed not to do anything unless an invasion actually occurred. The British did not want to antagonize the Americans. Tension had risen between the two nations during the Civil War and thus did not press the issue in Washington. The American army, led by Ulysses S. Grant, had issued an order that any force crossing the border was to be stopped. But the reality was U.S. troops were spread too thinly and Grant's subordinate, General George Meade of Gettysburg fame, who was responsible for the region, stated clearly that it would be near impossible for the U.S. military to stop the Fenians without significant reinforcements. So, with the Americans unable to provide any effective defense against Fenian attacks, the defense of the Canadas and Britain's other North American colonies would fall to the small number of British troops stationed along the border, along with whatever Canadian militia would show up, and of course, the work of the secret police. As some of you probably know, there were several Fenian raids against British North America over the next several years, and we cover the Fenians in more detail back in Season 3. However, let's just briefly go over the Fenian raids and try to understand how the secret police helped or failed to help in combating them. The first of the Fenian raids occurred in April of 1866, directed against Campobello Island in New Brunswick, which held a small British garrison and a weapons cache. As about 700 Fenians gathered on the U.S. side of the border, preparing to attack, word quickly spread to both the British and the Americans that this was occurring. The New Brunswick militia formed up, ready to defend the island, 
The British sent two warships down from Halifax, and even the Americans sent a naval vessel. In the face of such overwhelming odds, the Fenians retreated and dispersed. Now, rumors of a potential attack on Campobello Island had been filtering into New Brunswick for weeks. Part of this was because a smaller but similar body of secret police patrolling the New Brunswick border had been established under Thomas Anderson, and he had even sent two detectives into the United States. But another part of this was simply that the Fenians were very poor at hiding their activities. Sympathetic U.S. agents... British officials in the U.S., and even journalists all reported on different aspects of the Fenian mobilization. British troops and New Brunswick militia were being mobilized in anticipation. The U.S. Navy detained a Fenian ship entering Passamaquoddy Bay, carrying Fenian arms, and finally, a British naval vessel arrived as well. The Fenian raid was, frankly, over before it ever really began. Now, much more dramatic was a Fenian force of 1,200 soldiers who crossed the Niagara River on the 1st of June, 1866. And at a small hamlet north of the town of Ridgeway, the Fenians laid a trap for the Canadian militia and British regulars that were mobilized to drive them back. It was thus at the Battle of Ridgeway, 2nd June, 1866, veteran Fenians defeated the mostly inexperienced Anglo-Canadian force. The Fenians would then go on to inflict another defeat on a smaller Anglo-Canadian force shortly after Ridgeway. Yet, with their supply lines cut off by a U.S. naval vessel, a concerted Fenian campaign inland was just not feasible without supplies or more soldiers. The Fenians eventually opted to return to Buffalo on the early morning of the 3rd of June. And when they returned, the U.S. Navy arrested them all. On the 7th of June, another Fenian force, about 1,000 strong, invaded Canada East and set up camp at a series of points on and around Pigeon Hill near St. Armand, Quebec. A Canadian force arrived, and after some brief skirmishing, the Fenians surrendered as they had become surrounded and were running low on ammunition and supplies. Certainly McMicken, and one would assume Ermatinger, had been receiving reports for weeks about Fenian activity in the area around Buffalo. But while some information was certainly solid, many were just false reports about Fenian mobilization, while other agents were reporting that the rumors about Fenian numbers and strength were greatly exaggerated. The most important piece of intel was missing, that being the actual strategy and time and date of the Fenian invasions. This was kept top secret by the Fenian leadership, and in most cases, McMicken could only guess at what the Fenians actually had planned. All of this led to McMicken declaring that the Fenian threat was greatly over-exaggerated, and by the third week of May, McMicken considered Fenianism pretty much dead. Even as late as the 28th of May, McMicken received a report from an agent in Buffalo stating, and I quote, Everything about Buffalo and this place seems quite at ease. Nothing doing of much interest. End quote. Thus, 
in what is perhaps one of the greatest intelligence failures in Canadian history, despite McMicken's agents operating in Buffalo, they were shocked when the Fenians crossed the Niagara River from Buffalo and invaded Canada West. Four years later, 600 Fenians were defeated by Canadian militia of about the same number at the Battle of Eccles Hill on May 25, 1870, once again near St. Armand, Quebec. While at one point both sides were firing from their own side of the international border, the battle was decided when a bayonet charge by the Canadian militia scattered the Fenians. Two days later, a Fenian force of several hundred were beaten by a Canadian force of regular soldiers at the Battle of Trout River near Huntington, Quebec. Now, unlike the intelligence failure in 1866, this time the Canadian secret police had much better intelligence on these two attacks. Five separate sources of good intel were feeding solid reports back to Canadian officials, and by this time, many of the Canadian agents had fully infiltrated the Fenian ranks. The Fenians, in fact, had no idea how deeply the Canadian secret police had done so. One of these sources was McMicken's main man, named Henri Le Caron, who absolutely deserves his own episode. Le Caron had infiltrated the Fenians to its upper echelons and was giving McMicken detailed reports on troop size, movements, arms shipments, names of Fenian sympathizers, and addresses of weapons drops. In fact, Fenian leaders had put Le Caron in charge of organizing many of the arms shipments. This time, the Canadian government knew the Fenians were coming, and days before the Fenian invasion, military mobilization was already underway. The plan was to lull the Fenians into a sense of security, allow them to cross the border, and then smash them hard with a surprise attack by a ready and waiting Anglo-Canadian force. However, the defense of Canada did not go quite as planned at what would become the Battle of Eccles Hill. And this was because a local home guard in St. Armand, an informal militia known as the Red Sashes, had themselves heard that the Fenians were organizing on the other side of the border. They set themselves up on Eccles Hill, straddling the road that the Fenians would most likely use. And when the Fenians crossed on the morning of May 25th, the Red Sashes opened fire and scattered the Fenians. After the immensely successful intelligence operation against the Fenians, it came down to, as one historian wrote, a small group of self-created home guards acting on local intel and their own initiative. At Trout River, two days later, Canadian forces were already mobilized and marching towards the intended Fenian invasion point. When the Fenians crossed, they were outnumbered three to one, and in little more than an hour, retreated back across the border. At the same time that this new wave of Fenian attacks were being beaten back, sources confirmed that money was drying up within the Fenian organization and that even deeper divisions were occurring amongst its leadership. Some high-ranking Fenians claimed that an attack against Canada for the cause of Irish liberty was no longer feasible. Others even called it absurd. Some British and Canadian officials even started to believe that Fenianism in North America was one solid defeat away 
from total collapse. The last dying breath of this story occurred in October 1871 in what was known as the Pembina Raid. A small invasion force numbering around 40 men attacked from Minnesota into what they hoped would be modern-day southern Manitoba. The plan was to link up with Louis Riel and his Métis, but due to an error in direction and geographical complications in identifying the proper international border, the Pembina raid resulted in an invasion of northernmost Minnesota. The Pembina force was eventually arrested by American authorities, and in an ironic twist of fate, one of the key leaders of this raid escaped into Manitoba, where he was soon captured by some of Riel's men, who promptly turned him over to the U.S. authorities. McMicken had received extensive reports about this raid, and to his credit, he did travel to Minnesota to gain more clear intel on the situation. He was able to confirm reports that only a small number of diehard Fenians were being mobilized, but it was enough to get him to ride to Fort Gary, modern-day Winnipeg, and warn of the impending attack. When the raid was launched, it was a complete disaster, and most English-Canadian, French-Canadian, and Métis living in the area were already mobilizing to throw the Fenians back. But in the end, most of the raiders were simply arrested by U.S. authorities. The final serious Fenian threat to Canada had ended. With the Fenian threat pretty much over, the frontier constabulary was disbanded. A small number of agents were kept on in other roles for other spymasters, but broadly speaking, numerous payouts were issued, and these were based on length of service, success rate, etc. And the entire program was demobilized. Now, the stress of the work had seriously impacted Frederick Ermattinger's health, and he had passed away in 1869. McMicken, on the other hand, continued to live in Winnipeg for many years. His work as spymaster resulted in him being appointed commissioner of the new Dominion Police Force in 1869, the forerunner to the Northwest Mounted Police. In 1871, he became a land agent for the province of Manitoba. In 1879, he was elected to the Manitoba Legislative Assembly and was also one of the first to serve on the council for the newly established University of Manitoba. He died in 1891, and as one historian wrote, dined out for the rest of his life on the story of his epic journey to Red River in 1871 to forestall the Fenians. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.